or not so. So all of the teachings and practices that we're exploring during these weeks together, they're all converging in at one point. Uh, the sequence from the loving-kindness right on through culminating to bodhicitta, relative bodhicitta. That's all for the sake of realizing ultimate bodhicitta, which in the Dzogchen context is realizing rikpa. Rikpa is ultimate bodhicitta, right? That non-dual realization of pristine awareness and dhamma-dhatu, or absolute space of phenomena. So it's all going in that direction, to wake up. Then we have the, the shamatha route, where we're starting here in the shallow end of the pool, but we're in our bodies, which is a good place to start. But as you know, we'll be going from there to settling the mind, to awareness of awareness, and that's going directly to oh, realization of rigpa. <laughs> and then we're starting in the shallow end of the pool in this vipassana practice, very basic, foundational, elementary practices of closely bringing mindfulness to the body, to feelings, and so on, uh, which will be leading to segueing over into uh, the Mahayana approach, the Mahayana approach, like Shantideva's approach, to the four applications of mindfulness, which is all about realizing the empty nature, the emptiness of inherent nature of the body, feelings, and so on. And then that, of course, is leading to realizing the empty nature of your own mind, and that, of course, is right next door to uh, realizing Rikpa. So we're converging in from three, three angles, but all in on the same point, all having exactly the same purpose, same point of convergence. Oh. So they would say in Tibetan, Gomba Chik, it's all converging in upon one view. So in that theme, I'd like to do now, without very little, with very little preamble, go back to the first of the four applications of mindfulness in this very foundational way, uh, but drawing a bit from the Tibetan tradition, when I studied this, when I left the uh, Buddhist school dialectics a long time ago, it was to go off and practice the four applications of mindfulness. That's, that's why I left, so I could med- meditate more and try to integrate uh, the teachings that I'd received thus far. Um, and I remember very clearly then, it was by way of Tsongkhapa, because Tsongkhapa wrote a brilliant, concise explanation of these four applications of mindfulness, and he made it very clear that when we're referring to the first one, the close application of mindfulness to the body, uh, it refers, as we see in the Pali Canon, it refers to one's own body, one's attends to the body internally. You might recall this, yeah? And then one one attends to or closely applies mindfulness to the body externally, and that's closely attending to the body, the facial expression, body language, and so on, of others, human and non-human. And then one attends to the body internally and externally. It's really quite brilliant. And this is where one is engaging with some other sentient being, let's say a human being. But now you're attending to the whole system. As you're observing, I'm saying, Amy, the, the gentle Mola Lisa smile. You know? And now it's broken into, you know, the sun has come out and the teeth are showing. You know? So my words are influencing her, but then her, it's nice to see people smile. You know, and that and that that influences anybody who you know receives somebody else's smile, sign of friendliness, of good cheer, and so that was a whole system that took place there. You know, and so there it is, and this obviously influenced my words, and so it's this internally and externally, is in turn in seeing how our physical presence with each other influences the physical presence with each other. It's very, very deep, but Songkhapa takes it even a step further in this regard. He broadens it, broadens it. And he said, well, 
These four close applications of mindfulness, in fact, they're closely, when, when all is said and done, when you've finished with them, the whole set of four, you haven't left out anything. That is, there's nothing in reality that you've excluded. This is all inclusive. So these are four big categories. And what is placed in the first one, the f- close application of mindfulness to the body, is the entire physical world. Everything physical. Planets, elementary particles, you name it. But we're doing this from a first-person perspective. We're not trying to do it simply conceptually, imagining electromagnetic fields and so forth, but applying mindfulness to the physical world as it manifests. Because, of course, I've never questioned, and I think it's silly to question, that we are, we are physical beings and we're living in a physical universe. That's not all there is to it, of course, but it's also silly to deny. And so we're attending to the physical by way of five physical senses. Five physical senses. And so in our next practice, which we're going to get to very shortly now, is we'll come right back to this stillness. This is the common denominator. And this is the common denominator with Dzogchen practice. The texture, the cutting through to Rigpa, is that common denominator. Resting in the stillness of awareness, which unveils itself as pristine awareness. Uh, so we're going to come back to there, because we'll always come back to there, whether practicing mindfulness of breathing all the way through. We come back to this point of stillness, of clarity, of discernment, but rather than in the next session, I'll talk a little bit about it and give a bit of guidance, but it won't need much when we're actually doing it, we'll be, while resting in the stillness and doing our best not to move out. So we hear a bird chirping, we then don't leap off the bench and then follow the sound of the bird. We hear maybe anything else, or we see something, or we feel something. We don't leap off our throne and look, oh, there's a, there's a tactile sensation, oh, there's a sound, oh, there's the visual, oh, I'm, I think I'm smelling some incense, or what have you. We're not going out. We're staying right way where we are and attending to these appearances arising in the space of awareness. Because, of course, those appearances don't exist outside the space of awareness. They don't exist in physical space, and they're not physical. But now we'll add this element which makes it a bit more than simply bare attention. And it's a hypothesis. And it comes uh, from the Sautrantika system, just in case anybody's interested. The Sautrantika system Buddhist philosophy. And that is that for all of these appearances arising to, for the time being, I'm just coming, going to talk just about the five physical senses. We're going to have time for the mental later. That'll be central. But right now we're covering the physical. We don't want to overlook that. So from the Sautrantika system, for these five, sneeze coming. Yes, all the podcasters, you may thank me. I, I didn't just deafen you. Um, that for all these appearances arising to the senses, actually all six, but for right now we're on the body, which means we'll focus on five, all these appearances have momentary existence. All of these are arising from moment to moment to moment. They're always fresh, they're always in flux, always changing. They are subtly impermanent, and this is arising and passing from moment to moment, and that's true for all of them. Tactile sensations, sounds, the visual, the auditory, everything. All that green gustatory. That they're all fresh, unprecedented, arising and passing. The whole world is just all of these appearances, these five domains of appearances, are all in a constant state of flux, like as if they're fizzing or effervescent or just bubbling, bubbling all the time. In contrast to that, and these are what we directly perceive. These are what are given. These are the, in the scene, let there just be the scene, etc. It's that. It's complete 
just actually there's nothing to grasp onto because by the time you've grasped onto it, it's already gone. In contrast to what reality is dishing up by way of the five sense doors, in contrast to these appearances that are arising, there are the conceptual projections we superimpose upon these domains. In short, words and concepts, words and ideas. And the, and the hypothesis here, because that's the interesting way to approach this rather than just something to memorize, is that these words and concepts or words or, and ideas that we superimpose upon experience are static. They're static. So I imagine all of you have had an opportunity by now to have some idea of the kind of person, and I'm not going to criticize anything here, I'm just offering this to see whether it corresponds to your experience. Uh, you may have some idea, you may have formed an opinion, or have some idea what kind of a person is Mr. Donald Trump. Oh. <laughs> Name ring a bell? You know, anybody not heard of him? Anybody not have an opinion? You kind of like just, the jury's out? <laughs> Could be... No, it looks like the opinions. Okay. Um, so, you know, there's no point. There's, there's no need for me to express my opinion. Who cares? But the suggestion here is this. That whatever comes to mind when you think of this individual, or if you see him on the television, internet, and so forth, how you lock him in, the grid of your conceptualization, static. Not to say that it can never change. It's just that while it's there, it's like a snapshot and not a movie. The name, of course, Donald Trump, that doesn't change at all, unless you want to go to Drumpf. John Oliver had a very good piece on that. So if you want to shift over to Donald Drumpf, this is always a possibility. I actually seems to merit in doing that. Um, but everybody else here, I think, probably would really prefer Trump. Um, so there it is. But the, way, the, the name itself, of course, remains static. It's the same name here. When he was a little kid, I mentioned they called him Donald Trump, and now he's no longer a kid, they still call him the same name. I presume he's not the same in all, re all respects as he was when he was a little kid. But to watch this, you know, joking aside, to watch how the appearances are never the same. They're never the same. Similarities, of course, but the same? Does reality really replay itself? No, never does. The context is always different. And so the reality is always unprecedented, always changing. But that which we superimpose conceptually, static. Static. Which means one of those is realistic and the other one's not. Because nothing is static, and yet if our concepts and labels are static, then we know there's a, an incongruity, a disparity, between what's happening and what we're imagining to happen. And so there it is. I just took an icon because he's made himself so famous. But uh, in our personal relationships, relationship to spouses, children, friends, teachers, business colleagues, and so forth, what we carry around with us is going to be relatively static. The actual person is never static, not even when they're dead. They're still in a state of flux. You know? And so distinguish between these two. Because the general tendency is confusion. Fusing together that which we superimpose and that's what's given as if there's no difference, as if we're just witnessing all of it, as if that person really is as static as we, as we imagine him or her to be. 
and that will give rise to a lot of suffering. Now, if that's true outwards, oh gee. <laughs> How about our self-concepts? When people are suffering from low self-esteem, a sense of lack of self-worth, and so forth, might that possibly be, be just a wee bit static? You know, in contrast to the ever-changing flow of thoughts, emotions, desires, mental states, and so forth and so on. Or for people who are narcissistic, just the opposite, an inflated sense of their superiority, their outstanding qualities, and so forth, is that not also static? And so it goes every which way. So the practice, really simple, and then we, then we will begin. Really simple, let's rest in the stillness, be wide open without moving, but observe what arises, 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 in these very sense fields, so your eyes can be at least a little bit open. Be aware of whatever's arising there, from that stillness, and then note when the projections leap out, and what they are. As much as possible, from the perspective of stillness, see the projections going out, words, concepts, superimposed, and observe, is this true or not, that the appearances are ever-changing, and that which is superimposed, relatively static. Okay, let's go for it. vision, some view of the path from where you are today to the day that you'll become a Buddha, then you can sincerely arouse bodhicitta. It's not only a general aspiration, but it's an aspiration to pursue this path, follow this path to its culmination. And with this motivation, we take one further step on the path with this simple practice, which by itself could be just an isolated technique of quite little significance. But within the larger picture, a step on the path to realizing Rigma, to realizing the empty nature of all phenomena, to knowing reality as it is. With this motivation, let's settle body, speech, and mind in the natural state.
come to that stillness of awareness by releasing all grasping, all thoughts of the future and the past. Simply sustaining a presence of mind, a mindful presence. And bearing in mind that shamati is, after all, the foundation for vipassana. This is everywhere true in the Buddhist tradition. Test the level of your shamatha very gently, out of curiosity. And see if you can count 21 breaths. Full body awareness. One brief count. At the end of each inhalation, one staccato count. And between the counts, let your mind be as silent as possible, as continually engaged as possible, with a flow of sensations throughout the body corresponding to the in and out breath. 21 breaths. See how that goes.
and let your eyes be gently open, soft, relaxed, totally at ease and natural, blinking whenever you feel like it. As if you're in a room with five windows, open them all so the fresh air blows in through all the windows. For the time being, we will marginalize the sense door of the mind, because the object of mindfulness is the appearance or appearances arising by way of the five physical sense doors. Principally, centrally, let your awareness rest right where it is, in its own nature, holding its own ground, illuminating these five sense fields. does become active, whether internally generated or whether catalyzed by some sensory stimulation, and you see some thought, some label or mental image arising relative to, relative to or on the basis of any sensory impression, Observe the distinction between what is given and what is projected. And note, is it true in fact that the appearances to the five senses are in fact always changing, arising and passing, moment to moment? And is it true that when the conceptual mind projects ideas, thoughts, images upon these five senses, that these conceptual projections are themselves relatively static? Simply observe with discerning, intelligent mindfulness.
course, we have a lot of habituation to rumination, to mind-wandering. So whenever you notice that your awareness has been carried away, set in motion compulsively, again, let your first response be just to relax, to loosen up, or let go, and return to your throne. Let your awareness come and return to its own place and illuminate these five century fields.
Awesome. So let's go right back to the text. Make tracks. Because he, he's going to again be dealing for a little while more uh, with this broad overview. So we can either go through it very quickly or extremely slowly because there's so much content here. But we'd like to get on to his actual instructions in the practice, so we'll move quickly now. And so here we are. Um, so these are the these overviews of these different traditions. So the amulet box. The amulet box is the oral tradition of the scholar adept, the pundit Siddha Kyumbo Nanjur. It is shown by way of the threefold self-descended preliminary practice, the main practice, which is the self-freeing of, of the four faults, and the result, the self-appearing three bodies. We'll just leave it at that. The main practice is also said to be pointing out the thief, the principal instruction of the Shangbak. So there's one, the principal instruction of the Shangbakagyu. Uh, so one of the sub-lineages of the Gagyu tradition is the six yogas, six dharmas, or six, six dharmas, of Niguma, who is the consort of Naropa. And the six dharmas are inner heat, which is the foundation stone of the path, illusory body, the self-freeing or the self-release of attachment and anger, dream yoga, the self-awakening of the deluded mind, clear light, the dispeller of the darkness of ignorance, transference, which is poa, transference of consciousness, Buddhahood without meditation, and the, and the intermediate state, the bardo, the enjoyment body of the conquerors of these six dharmas, the amulet boxes, principally the way of meditating on the clear light, which of course is rikpa. So just running through that quickly. Uh, just giving outline, that's all we need for right now. The fivefold practice is a major practice of those of the takpo lineage. This is so takpo kagyu, another of the sub-lineages of the kagyu tradition. It is proclaimed in the root song of Jikningumbo, as for the stallion of awakening mind, as I recall, there was an, uh, an actual error in the translation here. I, I've done it myself, skipped a line, but I've corrected it. As for the stallion of awakening mind, bodhicitta, if you do not race it along the course of altruism, the cheers of the crowd of gods and humans will not arise. So assiduously to apply your mind to this preliminary practice. So, and then we just read through this. As for seeing your own body as the royal divine body, this is state regeneration practice, viewing your body as the body of the Yidam. As for this, if you do not hold fast to your immutable throne, remain sustaining that sense of divine pride, the, the pure vision of your own body, the host of Dakinis will not gather, so assiduously apply yourself to viewing your body as the divine Yidam, the personal deity. As for the snow mountain of the Guru's four bodies, if the sun of admiration and reverence does not arise, the river of blessings will not flow, so the ice pack won't melt, the river of blessings won't flow. So assiduously apply your mind to admiration and reverence. As for the vast sky of the ultimate reality of the mind, so this is the chitata again, as for the vast sky, the vast space of the ultimate reality of the mind, if the mass of clouds of thoughts is not cleared away, the planets and stars of the two kinds of knowledge will not shine, so assiduously apply your mind to non-conceptuality. Two kinds of knowledge are the two aspects of a Buddha mind. They're called in Tibetan Jinya Kimbe Yeshe, that more primordial consciousness that knows reality as it is, the very nature of reality, 
which is referring to nirvana, dhammadhatu, shunyata. So that's one type of knowledge, and it's a, a primordial consciousness, a primordial consciousness of knowing reality as it is. There's one that's knowing ultimate reality, nirvana, and the other one is jinya zipe yeshe, and that is the primordial consciousness that sees the full range of phenomena. So one is ontological, the second one is phenomenological. These are the two types of knowledge that manifest fully when you are perfectly awakened. So assiduously apply your mind to non-conceptuality, because both of these modes of knowledge are non-conceptual. The Buddha doesn't operate out of a conceptual mind. Not in the Mayana view. As for the wish-fulfilling jewel of the two collections, that is of merit and knowledge, if this jewel is not polished by your aspiration, your prayers, your aspirations, the results you need and, de- and desire will not arise, so assiduously practice yourself to this final dedication. The de- dedication of merit, which of course is once again an expression of aspiration. So moving right on on these, with these outlines, we'll just move right through briskly. Those with the transmissions, but it just does show something of this, just the tremendous richness of this culture. I mean, it's I think that it just is an objective fact. I think there was simply no planet anywhere, no, no parallel anywhere on the planet. Of six million people with 6,000 monasteries, one monastery for every thousand people, one out of every five men was a monk, one out of every seven women was a nun, and some of the monasteries had 10,000 monks in them, and hermitages everywhere, I mean, just all over the place. Uh, I doubt that there were many empty caves in Tibet. <laughs> I think they all got filled. You know, so it's it's really iconic, and I think you can tell. I'm not talking about a Shangri-La. I mean, they had corruption there. They had all kinds of nasty things going on. But let's keep on coming back to what was remarkably and quite gloriously, not only unusual but I think actually unique about this culture, because it's just like it's yin yang. That is, if, if modernity, which now dominates the whole planet, including Tibet, at least all the cities and towns of Tibet, by way of the Chinese communist occupation. If this is the young, uh, and we all know about it so, oh, so, every, so well, it's everywhere. Uh, Tibet was the dot. It's the dot. This little, it's not that little, but six million people, it's the size of Switzerland, right? same population. Um, so little, little. Not as big as Los Angeles in terms of population. But so utterly complementary, so not us. So profoundly not us. Uh, when you can literally say that their highest technology could either be bridges or prayer wheels. And bridges were built a thousand years ago. The iron bridges by one of the great lamas who was an engineer. Um, but, the, but they were here and there. You know, They didn't have that many bridges. But prayer wheels were everywhere. You know, prayer wheels. And so that was really the, their best technology. You know, the cutting edge. The prayer wheel's 202 and then 2.5, you know. <laughs> you know, really. And they, they, they seem to be content that they actually weren't getting better ones that would go faster, you know. Oh my Pemahun, here I come in. I'm going to whip through that 100,000 so fast, you'll dizzy you. They, you know, and I'm talking about hundreds of years now, for hundreds of years, right into the 19th century, right into the 20th century. On the whole, they really, number one, they had basically no starvation. Basically none. 
Nobody's extended belt, that kind of thing. Poor, of course. There's poor everywhere. There's poor, I don't know about Switzerland. I'm not sure about New Zealand. <laughs> Maybe no poor, but you know, people have less for sure. America has poor, lots of poor people. Very, the richest country on the planet. We have plenty of poor people. Tibet had poor people, but they had nobody with Swami. That never happened. Uh, so they seem to be overall really, and I've lived with Tibetans for years and years and years, in India, for example. And, and I know a lot about it because it was only a few years separate and I've been there four times. They seemed on the whole really very content with the level of technology, the level of wealth, you know, their horses, their herds, their farms. Um, they were really, they truly were sustaining a, a sustainable economy. And I think the growth of GDP was zero. Because <laughs> they'd found what the, everybody had enough to eat. And the very wealthy were not that wealthy. I mean, they were wealthy, but nothing like the wealth we see nowadays, which is ridiculous. Like, frankly, I think it's obscene. We had wealthy people, of course, all countries do. Even poor countries have wealthy people in them. Um, but on the whole, hedonically, and in terms of technology and so forth, they seem very content. Whereas they would direct their best and brightest. Very, this is a good generalization. They direct their, you know, their youth the best and brightest, they would direct them to dharma. That's where the, the creativity, the brilliance, and so forth, all their literature, virtually all the literature was about dharma. So it's quite remarkable, it's quite stunning how profoundly not us they are. And when I first went living with Tibetans in 1971, moving into this refugee community, which was dirt poor, I mean, pretty much everybody was poor, by Western standards, I think they're all poor. And finding to my amazement, because I didn't know what to expect, that they were the happiest people I'd ever lived with, as a community. Not just monks here and there, yogis here and there. Ordinary villagers. Ordinary villagers. But they were just no question about it. And I lived in Europe for years, California for years, and so forth. I'd never been with such happier people, with, with such happy people. And kind, kind, warm. So it's quite interesting that they seem to be quite content with the level of hedonia, but as they get into older age, you know, like my age, that you know, kids are grown up, kids will start taking care of their parents, that was normal. And then the people, you know, senior citizens, by and large, not an exception, the rule was they would just turn to Dharma. Not deep meditation, but devotional practices, whatever their level was. Uh, reading prayers, maybe studying, reciting mantras, circumambulations, doing devotions, and so forth. And uh, boy, those older Tibetan people just seem so content. You know, really, I'm not, I'm not idealizing anything here. This is what I lived in for four years. So this, and so this was a culture where this is the richness. We have tremendous richness in our modern world in so many ways, but it's not this. It's not this richness. We know what our kinds of riches are. They're hedonic. So, those with the transmissions from Dharma Lord Sambhagyare practiced and gave instruction on the eight great guidelines, or type guidance, I, I prefer guidance, it's not really not guidelines, I think it's really guidance. Or guidances, the eight great guidances. The six spheres of equal ta taste and the mountain Dharma. So these are again sublineages with Gaigyut, the eight great guidances. Are, it's teat in Tibetan. Teat means to, to guide, like guiding on a path. 
So the eight great guidances are the guidance... Yes, I'm checking it right now. The, uh, the guidance on the Guru's three bodies. Oops. Yep. The guidance on the Guru's three bodies. Guidance. You don't, we, need, we don't need the. Simply guidance. On love and compassion. Maitri and Karuna. Guidance on the fivefold nectar drip. I'm not going to try to figure that one out right now. Guidance on joining the conate guidance on the six dharmas of Naropa. Guidance on equalizing the eight worldly dharmas, or eight worldly concerns. And guidance on meditating to reverse ill fortune through three secret practices. So, I'm sure one could spend months and months on that. The six spheres of equal taste are taking thoughts as the path, taking mental afflictions as the path, taking sickness as the path, taking gods and demons as the path, taking sufferings as the path, and taking death as the path. Seems pretty complete. And of course that would imply these are all lojong, these are all transmuting whatever comes up into nourishment, sustenance for proceeding along the path. Then the richa, it's called richa in the mountain dharma. This is for yogis living up in retreat. In the mountain dharma there are four ornaments of the profound dharma, the ornaments of the oral instructions on the three spheres. Of these the first is the mountain dharma, the source of all virtues the great boat of secret empowerment, the hidden explanation of the Vajra body, and guidance on the intermediate state. These are the four. And the second is the ornament of direct guidance for clearing away hindrances, the ornament of the catalog of manifold spiritual songs, and the ornament of minor scattered categories. So just various topics. Moving right on. The four letters, the explanation is drawn from the word amanasi, which is the Sanskrit original for inattention, Manasi meaning attention, a is the negative. Its meaning is shown by way of the words four letters, a, ma, na, si. Thus the first, a, the first, uh, a, is cutting to the root basis of the mind. The second, ma, shows the method of settling the mind. The third, na, cuts off mental error. And the fourth, si, shows how to take the mind as a path. That looks kind of familiar. So then the holy dhamma of Damba Sangye. This is now going way back to the origins of the practice of jir, uh, the uh, pacification of suffering is called shijie in Tibetan. So it's an old tradition, been around for many, many centuries. Uh, one of the great, great yogis of Tibet, Padampa Sangye, uh, the guru of Machi Lapkidrama, who was one of the earliest great, great yoginis in the whole history of Tibet. Thus he says, this holy dharma, the pacification of suffering, when subduing harmful male and female demons, bind them in a magic circle of austerities. When sickness arises in the body, may the dharma datu and awareness, mix the dharma datu and awareness into one. When subtle conceptualization arises, cut the mental afflictions out. Again, this is klesha, afflictions. When sleeping alone in private, place your awareness in bare, place yourself in bare awareness. When out amidst a multitude, look directly at whatever arises. So that's a nice, that's something we can use right now. When sleeping alone or resting alone, sitting alone, you're in your own, your own room. When alone in private, place your, place your awareness in bare, bare awareness. So you know a lot about that. But then when you're out and about, going for a walk and so forth, uh, then look directly at whatever arises. So if that's maybe not a time to withdraw. After all, you're out in the world. So bring your awareness out. It's refreshing. 
Bring your awareness out to the sense fields. I've mentioned this a one and one to a number of you. Bring your awareness out to the visual field, out to the sky, out to the auditory field. Bring it to the tactile, right down to the ground, and look directly at whatever rises in the scene, let it be just the scene, and so on. That would be one good interpretation. When laxity arises, rouse yourself by saying, Pet! It'll wake you up. When dispersion or excitation occurs, cut it at the root. Just release it right there. When excitation, so dispersion is just that, it's this kind of outflowing of the mind. When excitation, agitation, turbulence, when this occurs, rest in the Dharma Dhatu or rest in the space of awareness. And when consciousness goes out after an object, look at the reality of the object. Focus clearly, mindfulness. This holy, this holy dharma, the pacification of suffering, when bad omens occur, this was a mistranslation, denge means bad omen, some kind of ill portent. Uh, when bad omens occur, take them as, as auspicious, in other words, transmute them into the path. Whatever concepts there are, delight in them. Of course, you can do that even only if you're not cognitively fused with them. When, sickness, when sicknesses occur, take them as boons. So again, the whole notion of transmuting. Whatever happens, take delight in it. Regard everything as blessing. Viewed from the perspective of pristine awareness, it's actually true. When death occurs, take it as the path. Whatever the Lord of death may be, delight in him. Sounds fun. <laughs> Good. This, whole, this holy dharma, the pacification of suffering, is the enlightened view of the conquerors in the three times. This is their view, their perspective. So Damba taught when he met the exalted Milareva. Hmm. That's interesting. Then there are severance. This is Jir, the very well-known practice of Jir, which is well known as the instruction of Damba, Padamba Sangye, and the profound dharma of Machik Lapdurn, Machik Lapgidurma, the great yogini, the garland of views, a special instruction, and other texts of the great perfection. and other texts of the Great Perfection, the vital essence extracted from the mind of Master Padmasambhava, guidance on the profound Banyamaka view, and others. Okay. Doesn't look like a complete sentence to me, but there are days that you just gave a list of these various traditions without explicating them. All, uh, although all of these teachings, maybe that should be a colon or something, um, I'll put in a colon just so we have a full sentence. Although all those teachings are given various different names that designate their individual instructions or purposes, and hear this familiar theme. It's a very important one, but I've, I've talked about it already. When the wise examine them well through scripture and reasoning that distinguishes how they are, how they are provisional or definitive. So provisional means they're contextual, they're provisional. They're not necessarily taken completely literally. And definitive are the ones that are just straight telling it like it is. Okay, this is the whole issue of hermeneutics, interpreting which of the teachings are to be, to be taken literally, which to be interpreted, or which are provisional, which are definitive. So, in other words, reading, reading the great texts, call them scriptures, the great treatises and so forth, and reading them with discerning intelligence, applying reason to them, and bringing all your intelligence to bear to determine which of the teachings are provisional, contextual, relative, which ones are definitive, uh, which means there's invariant there. Um, 
from the Madhyamaka view, it said that there's only one type of teachings that's definitive, and that's the teachings on emptiness. And everything else, planets, stars, Mount Meru, the four continents, everything else is provisional. It's provisional. It's contextual. It's relative to perspective. Whereas according to the Madhyamaka view, uh, there's a term I like here, uh, a cognitive invariant. So just let's just play with this just briefly. And that is in basic relativity theory, just ordinary special relativity. You have these different frames of reference, like one train is traveling at you know, 200 miles in one direction, another train. So if you're in this train, you're in that frame of reference. You're in this train going in the opposite direction, another frame of reference. Very, very, very clear. Um, and what the remarkable, one of the great discoveries, and it's, it's weird, is that how, whatever your frame of reference is, which is to say, however fast, however fast you're traveling, at one mile an hour, or you're traveling at you know, two-thirds the speed of light, from your perspective, from your frame of reference, the speed of light is always the same. So if you're moving in one direction at two-thirds the speed of light and you shoot a beam of light out in front of you, it's traveling away from you at the speed of light. But if you shoot it backwards, it's traveling away from you at the speed of light. If you shoot it off to the side, it's traveling at the speed of light. And so it's invariant. Whatever your frame of reference is, the speed of light is invariant, which is it's constant, it's definitive. It's definitive. It's a, an invariant across all frames of reference. Now that's, that's a metaphor, but it's, it's really, really weird. And then the implications of that, which have been very, very well tested empirically, this is a very well-established truth, is that given this invariant, then space, time, matter, and energy all wind up being variant depending on frame of reference. You have two frames of reference, and you can say, okay, well here we have a certain body of mass, a certain amount of energy, what is it really? So how much mass? How much energy? How long does it last? You know, some event taking place, how long does it last? Well, you can't say. You can say within that frame of reference, it's this, but another frame of reference, somebody traveling by two-thirds the speed of light, it'll be entirely different. So matter, energy, duration, and size, space, they're all relative to frame of reference. It's really weird. And the closer you get to speed of light, the weirder things get. Right? Whereas in all of those different frames of reference, the speed of light's the one thing that's invariant. So we'd say that's definitive, and the amount of mass, size, duration, and so forth, that's provisional. It depends on context, depends on perspective, frame of reference. So in a similar way, all of that was just a deep... It's interesting. Anybody who has any interest in physics, that's kind of very cool that one man came up with that on his own. Uh, but now we can ask, all right, and with it we'll go into this deeper when we get into the Vipassana section. Um, but it's said in the Kala Chakratanda, for example, that there are multiple descriptions of the universe. There's not just, in Buddhism, there's not just one. Uh, and it's said they're all provisional. And that is, there's no account, no description of the universe that is absolutely correct from every perspective. It's all relative perspective. But now we come back to the perfection of wisdom and Madhyamaka. The one thing that is an invariant, whether you're looking at the, at the at reality from the cognitive frame of reference, I spoke of, this, of the 
physics frame of reference, how fast you're traveling, direction and speed. But from a cognitive frame of reference, are you a deva, are you a preta, a human being, an animal, are you an Aryabodhisattva or an ordinary person? Many, many different cognitive frames of reference. And there will arise many different realities relative to your cognitive frame of reference. Now this is just an obvious truth. Dogs hear sounds that we don't hear. Uh, bats pick up sonar. We don't, we don't have that. Right? And so forth and so on. Different, different species can see different bandwidths of light. right? Uh, and that's just flat out physical. But that means they're living in a different world. They're not living in the same world we are because the world that they're experiencing is rising relative to their cognitive frame of reference. It's a caninocentric universe, a anthropocentric universe, a felinocentric, and so forth and so on. A bovinocentric, shall we go on? Uh, but a preta-centric, a hell-being-centric, a deva-centric, and so forth, that reality is rising relative to these multiple cognitive frames of reference. And they're different, and they'd be very, very different. What is common to all of them is everything they're seeing from whatever perspective. One common denominator. Empty of inherent nature. That's the one invariant. That's interesting, eh? That's the one invariant. It's always true. doesn't matter what your perspective is. You could be a hell being or a Buddha. doesn't matter. You may not know it, but this is true. That's the invariant. So that's kind of like a little unpacking of definitive versus provisional, or interpretive or contextual. One can say all of those. So the why is it that they all come down to a single view and as in the case of the complementarity of hot and cold are not in contradiction. The stainless light is the great commentary on the, on the Kalachaka Trantra, the Vilma Prabha. And so here, a, a verse from this great commentary, it is like jewels in the earth which are expressed or denoted by distinctive and differing names, and here's a mistranslation, from one region to the next. This is obvious. You know? One region calls it this, another region calls it that. Uh, even though they do not differ in being jewels. So they can be the same jewels, but they'll be called different by different names, not different languages, dialects, and so forth and so on. And that's what he's saying. And Geshe Rapten, years ago, it was way, like, a long time ago, 74, 75, he was giving a talk in the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives. I remember this so vividly. It's a long time ago. Uh, but he's giving a, he was giving a public Dharma talk there. Normally he was up in his little shack up in the mountains meditating. But he was invited down to give a, uh, give a talk. And he, I don't remember exactly the topic of the talk, but I do remember a point he made very clearly and emphatically as he is referring to the four schools of Tibetan Buddhism. Nyingma, Gajit, Sakya, Gelu. And he said, you know, they do differ. They have different interpretations. They emphasize different practices, different interpretations. They have sometimes different texts. Uh, this is the Saki text. This is the Nyingma text. And so forth. There's a lot of variation. A lot of variation. There's just no question about it. A lot of, as we've just seen, we gave a whole list upon list of different traditions. But for all the diversity of them, he said, you should know this. They're all like a single lump of gold that is shaped in different forms. But the gold is the same. That was helpful. So we move right on. So, the actual meditation. How then is Mahamudra meditation, meditation ordered? This is interesting. And I've seen this before. But I, but I first encountered it here when I received the teachings, the transmission on this text in 1976. 
Thus, of the two systems, okay, there are two approaches. I think pro- approaches will be better. Either way. Seeking meditation on the basis of the view, or seeking the view on the basis of meditation. We have these two systems or approaches. The explanation here is according to the latter system. Seeking the view, in this case, we'll see that in this context, he's referring to the Madhyamaka view, the, the view of Nagarjuna, the middle way view of emptiness and dependent origination. But there are two approaches here. And that is one, is that you seek meditation on the basis of the view. Well, this has become almost universal nowadays. It's not quite universal, but very, very common, especially in the Galupa tradition, but elsewhere as well. And that is if you're a bright young monk or nun in the Galupa tradition, and you say, I want to devote the rest of my life to Dharma, and you're living in a Buddhist context, you're living in India or Tibet, what have you, uh, then most likely you'll be sent off to the monastery and you'll train to become a geshe. And happily, very happily, now women have that opportunity as well. For a long time they didn't. But now they do. So there are women geshes. Uh, and I, not only Tibetan, but now some Westerners. I understand. Yeah, good. Excellent. Why shouldn't they? But they do. Good. Um, but how long will that will take to become, to get your degree and and having become very, very well-versed in Buddhist ethics, Buddhist phenomenology, Buddhist epistemology, Buddhist philosophy, Madhyamaka, the whole sti- the, the, the five paths, the ten bhumis. There are five treatises that will be studied very, very carefully. By and large, they're memorized verbatim, and you will then study the commentaries, and you'll spend five, six, seven, eight hours a day debating them. So you really are introduced to the Buddhist, world, Buddhist view, and when you complete that kind of training, then you are very, very well prepared to give articulate, clear, authentic teachings on the Buddhist view. The Mahayana view, rooted in India, flowering in Tibet, uh, and you really have learned the Buddhist view, including the Madhyamaka view, which you may study for four years straight, with just that as your focus. Uh, And then, once you become a Geshe, then it might occur to you, and it might not, to then go off and single-pointedly apply the teachings, the view that you've learned, to meditation. And sit down and practice Lamrim and go through it, develop renunciation, bodhicitta, practice and achieve shamatha. That's the next step. Practice and achieve realization of emptiness by way of vipassana. That's the next step. And then proceed right into, if you're a classic galupa, go into stage of generation completion. And there have been. There have been yogis like that. I think they've always been a minority. In fact, they've always been probably a tiny minority. Uh, but boy, when it works, it works. If you want to see an example of that, look at the, one of the first Tibetan Buddhist books I ever read, again, a long time ago, uh, The Way of the White Clouds by um, Anagariko Govinda. It's an old one, 50 years ago, or something like that, written. And uh, he describes about his own adventures, which is, is cool. But what I found really inspiring in his book was, is not his own story so much, nothing against him at all, but his account of his, of his lama, Toma Geshe Rinpoche. And so he was Geshe. He was a Geshe. He went through the whole training. He did this. He did the view first, and then he did go on to meditation. And he spent something like 12 years living in a cave, went up the high mountains and living in a cave there. He just disappeared. He got his Geshe. And once you become a Geshe, you know, get all kinds of job offers. <laughs> you really will. Offers to teach, become an abbot of a monastery. You'll, you will not be unemployed. Because it's a, it's a prestigious, it's a prestigious degree. Well, he got his degree and he disappeared. And he went high into the mountains, way above the uh, tree line. 
he just disappeared. It was off the map. Nobody knew where he'd gone. Nobody knew, really, how he was even eating, how he main maintained his body. Um, but something like, like 12 years of solitude, based on like 20 years of really rigorous training in view, then on that basis he went on for meditation. And the story, which I read 45 years ago or so, so it could be a little bit rusty, but I think I got the basics still, is he was up there and he was uh, living in total solitude, all total isolation, total focus on his practice, and having been extremely well-trained, so he knew exactly what he was doing. And he was up there and he was out doing, one day he was doing his uh, daily and ritual practice with his bell and his damaru. And a herdsman lost his goat or something, some kind of livestock, and was out searching for the missing livestock. Let's say it was a goat. And looking all over for him. And then this herdsman, way up where they just knew nobody lived there, which is so remote, so wild. This herdsman then heard this bell in Damaru. And his first response was, oh, it must be demonic. I mean, nobody lives here. We know that. It must be some spook, you know, some demon or something. Because it's... Demons, you know, they believe in demons, spirits, and so forth as much as we believe in viruses and bacteria. It was not a matter of question of, like, they're there. Be careful. Nagas, look out for nagas. They can be really nasty. So they took all of these very seriously, as we seriously, you know, wash our hands after, you know, we've been messing around, doing something that's, you know, unclean, whatever, anything. Um, so he heard this, and he thought it was a spook, some demon or demonic force or something. Why a demon would want to ring a bell and down, I don't quite know the logic. But, but basically, he just kind of assumed, we know nobody lives here. So therefore, it can't be human. If it's not human, it's one of those spooky creatures. So he, he got really freaked out and he hunched down. But then he, his curiosity overcame him. And he peeked around the, lo the, the rock, to, you know, got closer, you know, what's, what's the spook? And he saw it was this, this yogi. And then, just day and night, from being kind of, freaked out and thinking there's going to be some apparition, to then immediate very deep reverence. That would just be the natural response for any Tibet, traditional Tibetan. Then reverence, oh, then we're dealing with a holy man here. Because he knew, he's from the nearby village, he knew nobody's giving any supplies. Everybody knew that. You, know, you go up once a week, once a month, bring him some samba. You know, nobody was doing that. So he thought, well, this man must be really the real deal. Because he's been living up here with no food. And who knows how long. So then he kind of crept up to him very humbly, to the yogi, and asked for a blessing. And then, of course, he went down to the village and blabbed everybody. <laughs> hey, there's a yogi up there. Oh, oh boy, let's go see. <laughs> that, was the end of the, that was the end of the Geshe's retreat. You know, forget it. <laughs> He'd been discovered. But if you read um, Anagarika Govinda's account of this man, he was spectacular, really spectacular. The way he lived the cities he displayed, uh, the power of his wisdom, and then the manner in which he died was really quite spectacular, quite amazing. So when it works, it works. And it doesn't matter at, at, at all whether it be a galupa, kaigya, sakya. The, the Tibetans don't care. That I can tell you. When they see it's a holy person, the last thing they're thinking is, what are you, sakya or galupa? You know? They're not checking credentials. You know, if it's a holy, holy man, and they really, frankly, they don't care whether it's a man or a woman. If it's a holy person, it's a holy person. I don't think, on that level, I think gender bias is gone. In many other cases, it's there, but not here. So when I read that, I was really inspired.
And then, of course, he passed away. And, uh, and then, not too long after that, several years back later, uh, they sent out search parties. Sent out search parties. Because the Tomagishi Rinpoche had actually established monasteries, not only in Tibet, but also in Sikkim. In Sikkim. And I think in Darjeeling, in India, way up there in northeastern India. So they, they did their, the Tibetans did what they always do with the great lamas. They look for the tulku, the incarnation. And I'm sure they did divinations and so forth. And they sent out search parties, traveling as usual incognito. So nobody knows. They look like merchants or just traveling people. And, but they knew where to go. They knew which village to go to. And it was actually in Sikkim. And so they sent this search party down. And this is all written in the book. So you, you can read the book and see whether my memory is completely bonkers or whether I'm t- telling what actually I read 45 years ago. But I think it's correct. Um, so they sent the par- search party and, they're, and they're, uh, you know, they have the kind of the GPS on the little tuku. They, you know, <laughs> by their divinations, they knew where to go. And uh, so the search party is walking down this little street in this village in Sikkim. And the little, a little boy comes out, like five-year-old, four-year-old. And he takes one look at them runs back into the house and he, and he calls up to his mom and said, Mom, they've come to take me back to my monastery. <laughs> then they did tests. He recognized some of the people in the search party by name. They brought him back to his monastery. He recognized buildings that had been erected since he died. He said, oh, this wasn't here last time I was here and so forth and so on. I read that. And that is one of hundreds upon hundreds of accounts like that. If it were one, you say, oh, this is probably just superstition or whatever. Every generation, it was common. So I read that and I think, Paul, I think they know something we don't know. That was my impression. So when it works, it works. Meditation on the basis of the view. If you have only the view, you never get around to meditation, well, at least you can probably be a virtuous person with good knowledge and maybe articulate teacher. And that's not trivial. But you don't speak from realization. But that's not the approach he's taking here. The approach he's taking here is Seeking the view on the basis of meditation. Well, as we'll see in this context, seeking the view on the basis of meditation is first achieving shamatha. Basis of meditation doesn't mean any kind of meditation. It means shamatha. It'll be very clear here. So first of all, before you go for elaborate or concise teachings on the middle way view, perfection of wisdom, and so forth, first make your mind a suitable vessel, practice and achieve shamatha, and then with the sublimely purified mind, sane mind, free of the five obscurations, richly imbued with the five dhyana factors, serviceable, blissful, stable, clear, very low signal-to-noise ratio, ready to be put to work, then be introduced to the view. And he says, between these two, I'm following the latter. So this is really the yogi's approach. Okay. Now, for those of you who have heard earlier podcasts from me, you know, like Amy uh, and others, I'm sure, Claudio, you ever heard this one before? Yep. Natural Liberation yep. by Padmasambhava. He says exactly the same thing. And he says it right before he goes into his explanation of shamatha. He said there are two approaches. There's those who seek the view on the, um, the, the meditation on the, way, on the basis of the view and those who seek the view on the basis of meditation and he's taking exactly the same approach as the pensioner Rinpoche here. Now, in the Glupa tradition, it's said that the pensioner Rinpoche, 
in his previous incarnation, he had many of course, uh, he was Atisha. Atisha took birth as Penchenabache. And Atisha himself was said to be a speech emanation of Padmasambhava. So it goes around, comes around. <laughs> so, and the lake, and the speech emanation, of course, is the Lake Bhavadra. So from Padmasambhava to to Atisha to Penchenabache, all in the same family. Okay. So how is it that one acts according to the second system? So. If you're going to do that, if you're going to seek the view on the basis of meditation, in other words, take a very, a, a very empirical approach. The other one, which can be very strong, I just gave an elaborate account of how it can really work well. Geshe Rappan also spent 24 years earning his Geshe degree, earned top marks, highest level. And then, it was very moving. I mean, I learned this when I received his, his autobiography. He was absolutely first-rate scholar. Absolutely first-rate. Uh, and so he could have really had any job he wanted within the Galupa tradition. I mean, he was outstanding. He's also a brilliant teacher, outstanding teacher. Um, but what he commented, which I found very moving when I received his life story when I was 22, 23 years old. So there he is. He started his training when he was 19, quite old for a Tibetan. And he finished his final degree, and this was a, an all-day exam where you're, you're examined on everything you've studied for the last 24 years, and you're equally responsible for everything you've studied. It's not like anything like getting a university degree, where they assume by the time you've graduated, you've forgotten 95% of what you've learned. <laughs> Literally, you've forgotten 95% of what you've learned. And I know that. It's very true. Uh, whereas, when you're up for your final exam, and it's an oral exam, and it will take all day, and you will be examined by the most brilliant scholars available, uh, and it will be all day, they can ask you about anything you've studied over the last 24 years. And they will. They will. And they may quote a text that you memorized 20 years ago. And you better remember it, because they'll ask you to unpack it, interpret it, and defend your interpretation. And if you blow it, well, when the Dalai Lama took his exams, 30,000 people were watching. So if he blew it, and they did not pull punches with him, Oh, he's the king, we have to be sweet. Uh-oh. They brought out the sharpest of the sharp to examine him. And he did pass with flying colors, but he earned every bit of that. They did not get the, uh, you know, the soft-touch approach. So it's quite an awesome, but here's the point. So he, he passed his final exams, got the highest, like summum cum laude, the, you know, the highest, highest honors degree. And he could really have any job he wanted. And then this thought came to his mind. He told me, and it's in the book, uh, The Life and Teaching of Geshe Rapten, published in 1980, a long time. He said, well, there I was. So he's 43 years old, finished his degree. He did on, went on to do a little bit of further kind of addendum studies, a little bit more study, just to kind of round it off a bit. But then he thought, basically, the world is his oyster. Yes, you, the world is his oyster. He could, you know, become an abbot, a teacher, all kinds of things. He was already, a, and he was appointed to be a secondary tutor, like doctrinal consultant for the Dalai Lama. That was quite prestigious. But then he made this comment. He said, now, as I'm getting older, he's moving towards 50, he said, well, I note now that most of my teachers have passed away. They're either old or they're passed away. 
and how can I pay, repay their kindness? Now especially so many are gone already. And he said, there's only one way, only one way I can repay their kindness. And that is to devote myself day and night to single-pointedly practicing the teachings they gave me. So where he could have been abbot of a big monastery, etc., he moved into a cowshed, a cowshed, four walls, a slate roof, ra- uh, branches for rafters, no utilities, forget about it, no water, nothing, just a cowshed. He moved into there, lived there for six years, and single-pointed practice, devoted himself to meditation. And that's why I met him, and that's why I received his life story in his cowshed. So... So that's another example of a person who had tremendous erudition, really was immersed in the view, and then single-pointedly and immersed himself in practice. And he was there for six years. And during the, that six years or so, during the latter part, we had the, there were these Western hippies showing up in Dharamsala. This is the late, very late 60s, very early 70s. And they'd show up and, you know, want to learn about Buddhism. Well... None of, basically, none of the lamas could speak English, and that would be the most common language uh, among the Westerners. But Geshe Ratan had a, a student who could speak a little bit of English, and that means a little bit more than anybody else. <laughs> it was very little. And so the word got out that there's a student of this yogi up on the mountain who can speak English. And so one by one, one just one on one, one one student would seek out the translator and say, could I receive some, some personal instruction, meditation guidance from this, this lama? And they would give him one-on-one, one teachings, here and there. Uh, but he went down, his Gisharap went down to his holiness and said, I've got these, <laughs> these <laughs> I don't know exactly what he said, but I've got these Western hippies pestering me, and what will happen? <laughs> and his holiness would teach them. You know, there's nobody else can teach them. Gisharapantaki wasn't in town yet. He didn't come until 71. Uh, and so... Geshe Rabin got the name of Hippie Lama. <laughs> hippie Lama. Not that he was anything like a hippie, but he was the only Lama that made himself available to teach the hippies. Right? So this went on for just a couple of years. Uh, but he was the one Lama in, in the whole town that had an interpreter who could give you, you know, get some of the information across, some of the teachings across. And then in the fall of 1971, that's when I showed up, then for the first time... Uh, a few, a few of them clustered, and I was among them. A few, like maybe twenty, and said, "Why don't we ask collectively for some teaching?" And one of the, and one of the, uh, I don't know who it was. Might have been Charles Genou. I can't remember. Maybe Charles Genou or Trizin. Uh, Trizin. What was his name? But, uh, I can't remember his first name right now. Geshe Kapo. They called him back then. Anybody listening from the old days, you know, who I'm referring to. But a couple who'd been there for like a year or so, old timers. They got together and they decided, let's ask Geshe, Geshe Ratan to give us teachings on the preliminary practices according to a text by Gampopa, disciple of Milarepa. And Geshe Ratan probably asked his holiness again, <laughs> like, do I have to? <laughs> or should I? But the answer, the answer he, he agreed. And so uh, this I must say, I mean, if, if my face is getting really soft, and uh, it's because it was just magic. It was just magic, you know. Bunch of, we're all like 20, 22. We're all young. And we're all over the, all over the West, you know, all of Europe, uh, New Zealand. I mean, one guy from New Zealand, America, and so on. And we'd hike up to his little cabin, this little hut, and we'd cram 20 people into his little cow shed. 
sitting on the dirt. And Gonzo Rinpoche would be sitting right next to him, and he would give us these teachings. And they were wonderful, really wonderful. Like once a week, we'd go up there. He was a yogi, from whom we received teachings. And then eventually, a French woman, no, a Swiss French woman, Madame Ansemay, quite, quite the lady, woman of great culture. She got to know Yeshua Rabdin and His Holiness. And she had a lot of connections. She was very highly placed in Swiss society. Society woman. She had a beautiful house right on the Lake of Geneva. And she asked His Holiness, she asked Geshe Rapton whether he'd be willing to come to the West and live in the West, in Switzerland, and really turn the wheel of Dharma there. And Geshe Rapton then went to His Holiness and said, well, what? His Holiness said, yeah, go. And that was the end of his retreat. Otherwise he would have stayed in retreat for the rest of his life. Okay, that was a little bit of storytelling. But those were remarkable times. They really were. Really tough. Really tough. Man, not tough. Physically. Awful. Spiritually. Incredible. Big mix. So, Shantideva, so how is it that one acts according to the second system? Well, as the guardian Shantideva says, knowing that inside Vipassana, possessed of serenity, shamatha destroys mental afflictions, you must first seek serenity, shamatha. Classic. And he speaks with enormous authority. Also, the jewel heap, the Ratnamega Sutra says, abiding in morality, you obtain concentration, and abiding, obtaining concentration, you cultivate wisdom. As stated, this is the system in which one seeks the view on the basis of of meditation. In other words, you first prepare your mind to exceptional sanity, balance, clarity, freedom of of obscurations, supple, pliant, clear. And so bringing like a pure golden chalice. And then you say, please pour into the chalice the nectar of the teachings of the middle way. And that's the way that Benjaminbuchi is teaching here. And that's where we will pause. It's now six o'clock, right on the button, so that was good timing. And I'm going to do something maybe not predicted. He's going to go now into the specifics of Shamatha within the Mahamudra tradition. Uh, I can say, because I know the text kind of well, uh, he's going to be drawing overwhelmingly for this section on Shamatha. He's going to be very drawn, I think, frankly, 100%, on the Kagyu tradition of the methods of Shamatha that are right in the groove, right in the flow of Mahamudra. There are many, many techniques. I think you know of that. Buddha, Buddha image and so forth and so on. Stage regeneration can be an avenue for achieving shamatha. But if what you're really intent in, what your passion is, like, oh, like you, for example, you and me, if your passion is to understand the nature of mind, to fathom the nature of the mind, what is the nature of consciousness? When you dissolve the mind, what's the nature of that from which your mind emerges? If you fathom that, is it inherently existent? Is it not? Is that ultimate, or is there even a ground state beyond that, beyond the substrate? If you, what you'd like to do is fathom the nature of the mind from the top to the bottom, right down to Dharmakaya, then you better get your act together, because this is a very, very large challenge, an enormous undertaking, and the first thing you better do is achieve shamatha. Because if you bring in, if you bring a flip-flop, crappy mind also alternating between laxity and, <laughs> laxity and excitation, 
I mean, it's so half-assed. Really, it's so flaky. It just like, really? Really? That's all your preparation? You're bringing crappy little mind into this? Into Mahamudra? So I've given all kinds of analogies for that. So I'm going to pause here. Not only do we stop now, but I'm going to switch. And uh, we're going to go to another text. One you don't have. <laughs> in 1990, after I received the first teachings that I ever received from Gyatri Rinpoche, which were in Dream Yoga, and he blew my mind and I asked him to be my lama. Not long after that, uh, then he asked me for the first time to serve as his interpreter, to be his interpreter. He had been invited to a Shambhala Center, Shambhala Center, uh, tracing back, of course, to Shukim Tumaramache, uh, down in Hollywood. They invited him to come down and give teachings. And, uh, and Gautrudu Maja asked me to come down and act as his interpreter. Of course, I accepted very gladly, joyfully. And I then was his interpreter, his primary interpreter, for seven years. Um, but it began there in Hollywood. And uh, the first text that he taught was a chapter that he, he pulled out of another great big treatise. It's called actually the Del Shen, the Great, the great Commentary, by Karma Chamerameche, the same author, of course, as Naked Awareness, Spacious Path of Freedom, but another text, never been translated. It's called The Great Commentary. It was this great scholar and adept, Karma Chamerameche, his commentary on teachings by his incredible prodigy of a disciple, Mingyo Doje, called Namchur, Space Dharma. And he had one whole chapter, about 20 pages or so, all devoted to shamatha. So Gyatra Nupachi plucked out of that very large text, chapter on shamatha, chapter on vipassana. And he taught them, and he completely blew my mind. Just blew my mind. And as I have done so many times, when I receive teachings on a text that I think is fantastic, then I translate it. And so I translated that chapter, and received the oral transmission and commentary from Gautra Rinpoche. Not too long after that, a year or two years later, three years later, then Gautra Rinpoche authorized me to teach everything, for me to teach everything he taught me, but of course includes this. And so uh, I've never taught it. That was 26 years ago, something like that. Never taught it. But I did translate it. I just kept it on my computer like a dharma, a little treasure on my hard drive. <laughs> And I'm just sitting there, and I might one day want to get it cut published, but I don't have any plans right now. Uh, so, for those listening by podcast, this is to everybody here. Uh, Claudia has already very kindly asked the uh, administration here uh, to print up this text, about 20 pages or so, all in Chamata, right from the Kaikyu tradition, Kaikyu, Nyingma, Mahamudra Dzogchen tradition. Um, so that will be available by tomorrow. People here can ha- have hard copy. Uh, because I might want to publish it someday, and it will be unpublishable if somebody just pu- puts it on the internet. No publisher will publish anything that's already in the public domain. So then you're, you're finished. And so, since I might want to publish it so many people could read it, um, I won't simply send it to Sangye for her just to put on the internet, because then it's public domain. I don't have any clinging to it, but that means I can never publish it. And so here, for anybody listening by podcast, uh, if you would like to receive this text, digital copy of the text, so you can follow along and read it. It's, it's, it's translated, it's polished, I won't have to retranslate it. 
uh, I think this translation is sound. I did it directly under you know, with Gertrude Butch's oral commentary. If anybody listening by podcast would like to have a text yourself, then you may write to to Sungate, write to the Santa Barbara Institute, and request it. In requesting it, I'm asking you to make a pledge, and that is that it's just for your private use. Please don't post it on the internet. If you do, then I'll never be able to publish it. You can share it with friends, but please just use it for that. And so that's my request. So anybody who requests Sangay, and I've already checked with her, she's very happy to send it, but she'll send it out one by one. So it's a bit of extra work for her, but she's happy to do it. And so then it'll just be on her system. That you'll use it for your own sake, you'll practice it, share it with friends if you like, just don't pop it on the internet. Unless you want to make sure it'll never be published and nobody else will ever see it. Except by the internet. Uh, and so, and it's hard to find, of course. You know, somebody disappears in a, into a billion uh, you know, websites, who, who, where can you find it? So that's it. We'll do that. We'll go focus on that. That'll take us on a little excursion for a few days, and then we'll come right back to Pinjana Butch's text. So, that's all clear? All right. Very good. So I'll share that with you. Yeah, it is precious that I would say. That's I'm very, very happy to share it with you. It has the blessings of the lineage, and so as the Pinjana Butch is uniting the Gelu and Kagyu, Kamachamet is uniting the Kagyu and the Nyingma. And so this is a big, happy reunion. <laughs> okay, good. Enjoy the day. See you tomorrow morning.